The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Good morning, Tim. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks, Rich. Hey, you know what? Uh, we have a really cool guest uh, this week. It, from all those people paying attention to the never-ending cycle of stuff around the California governor's office, you probably know that uh, communications person Anthony York, of course, if you, again, if you know Capital Weekly, you know uh, Anthony's connection here to us, uh, has left. Uh, the governor's office, the horseshoe, and has been replaced by longtime uh, Capitol News person Robert Saladay. And it got us thinking, well, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about the interesting job of working communications in the California governor's office. And we couldn't ask for anybody better than our guest today, a longtime Capitol uh, veteran, even though uh, he's much, much younger than me, it makes me kind of embarrassed <laughs> to think about how, how much younger he is than me and that much more accomplished. Uh, Nathan Click, how are you doing today? I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me on. Excited to be here. Well, I, so let's jump right into that. As you know, we know there's, there, they, you know, and it's not unusual to have a lot of movement in the, in, in the governor's office. I mean, it's a high pressure 24-7 job. But uh, tell us a little bit about what it's like to work communications in that environment. I mean, the job is insane. Uh, um, you have in a state like California, you have a million, sometimes literal fires happening every day. There's a lot going on in the state, a lot going right, uh, a lot that can be going wrong at any moment. And the governor is in charge of literally everything and therefore his communications team is always on the lookout for for what might be happening next uh, while still trying to drive, you know, a very muscular, proactive agenda. I think this governor is a governor for our times. There's so much going on in the world. He has a real thirst and hunger to make change in so many different areas. That's why you see him on TV three, four times a week talking about different issues, different initiatives that he has. Um, during COVID, I was there with him in what we call the sock every day for his daily press conferences, helping produce those, um, helping keep the state in what was a crazy crisis informed and feeling like they could trust that their government was actually working for them. So in that way, it's just so much that you have to deal with on a daily basis, but you can't really take your eye off of what is the agenda that we're trying to sell to Californians? How are we showing that the governor is not just responding to all of the crises uh, that are happening at that given moment in the state, but actually um, putting forward solutions uh, that help them uh, from day to day? So previous to being here, I, I covered governors all over the country for 20 years. And some governors will put out 10 press releases a day some may not put out 10 a month, but very, very different. And the one thing I've always noticed about Gavin Newsom is his press releases tend to be a little more substantive, I guess. They, because, uh, you know, some governors, I mean, if, you know, I'm making a joke, but they, they practically put out a press release when they've had a particularly good sandwich at lunch. You know, this governor has always really been so policy focused. 
you know, what, how involved does he get in terms of the messaging uh, for the people that are responsible for this? He's super involved. I mean, it reflects who the governor is. I think a lot of people are surprised when they get to know him. I think a lot of the people covering the Capitol who didn't know him before um, are surprised to find out that he is a big policy wonk. Like he cares so deeply about the numbers. He cares deeply about uh, specific pieces of uh, legislation and policy. And and I think, but he also cares a lot about a number of things, about you know a wide range of issues. I think that is something that's unique to him for uh, all of the different elected officials I've worked for. And I think it's just, it's something that he brings to this job that I can imagine few others do. And it's why you see, you know, even though he's doing four, five press conferences a week, sometimes, you know, they can run 30, 40, 50 minutes and he can, you know, really get on a roll telling you about all of the different, you know, components of what he's talking about. He cares a lot and he loves that level of detail and he expects it from everyone who works for him. Now, how did you get, how did you get the job? Did you go way back with the governor? So, uh, a little history on me. I was a Democratic Senate campaign operative, um, worked a bunch of Senate campaigns across the country. And then we may have some questions for you about that later. <laughs> Great. Uh, where was it ended up being a U.S. Senate communications director uh, for Maisie Hirono and then just got the call of a lifetime to be the communications director for Kamala Harris's U.S. Senate campaign in 2015. Um, a lot of people who I worked with in D.C. said, hey, why are you you're already in the U.S. Senate? Why do you want to work for a Senate campaign? I always loved California. I you know, had long admired then A.G. Harris and uh, took the job, moved to L.A., worked for her. And then by getting to work with her, got to know Governor Newsom, then L.G. Newsom. A lot of the teams overlapped. So a lot of the same folks like Kristen Bertolina, uh, Sean Clegg, A. Smith. Uh, Juan Rodriguez um, were also part of the governor's team. And uh, then uh, after working for Harris, I then started working for Newsom's gubernatorial campaign. So that was 2017, 2018. Well, since you've mentioned campaigns, <laughs> I have the thing I think everybody right now is, of course, we're, they're focused on many things. And aside from the budget, probably the thing they're most focused on is the upcoming primary. Um, it's been... A pretty interesting race so far. You, of course, have a very strong connection with Katie Porter. But do you have thoughts on the, the primary? You know, what, um, you know, how things have gone? Is, has there been anything that is surprising to you? Is there anything that is, uh, you know, not surprising? You know, how, how is this playing out from your perspective? I, so I'll get into my prediction in a little bit. But I do think that this campaign has been interesting and in that there's just been so many different wrinkles. I think the we started out the year, you know, two of the candidates, three of the candidates um, announced before Senator Feinstein, you know, had said that she wasn't running. I think, uh, you know, her uh, untimely passing and the appointment was definitely also, you know, the ramifications of that was certainly something that, uh, 
uh, going into the year. I don't think any of the campaigns expected. But I we're at a relatively stable place now that everybody's filed and uh, we know what the ballot's going to look like. As you said, I work for Katie Porter. Uh, here's my prediction. Uh, she's definitely going to make it into the top two. I think in every poll, she's you know right around within a few points of shift. Some polls have her leading shift. And you know that that has been the one thing in this race that has been consistent. Uh, so big prediction. She's definitely going to make it in the top two. And in a top two versus Adam Schiff, I think you know there's going to be a real contrast, both in style, but also on outlook. Who's delivering for Californians? Who's focused on uh, a lot of issues, not just Trump? I think you know. Stay tuned, but it's going to be a fun one. Are you surprised at all? Because Tim and I have talked about this a lot on on our show that Barbara Lee isn't doing better than she has been doing, uh, given her long track record. Really thought maybe it would be a little closer on her end, and it really hasn't been. Has that been surprising at all to you? I, you know, I have a lot of respect for Congresswoman Lee. Uh, I think it's just really hard as a one of the fifty plus members of the house from california to really break through and get name id i think it's a testament to katie porter frankly that in her four short years in congress that she's been able to build what is essentially a national platform and a national profile um and she's built it not on being a partisan warrior but holding people accountable whether it's government officials ceos um and you know frankly i think that's something that that voters want and they don't get as much as they want from Washington. And I I think it's I'm hard pressed to find someone else uh who's had that kind of rise in such a congested media landscape for for California House members. Well let's talk about that a little bit more too. I mean um you are part of a lot of different initiatives that are going on right now. I mean, you know, we're in an election year and it's always surprising, I think, to some people how little could get done during an election year. Um, What are your thoughts, I suppose, as you're surveying in front of you here? We have a lot of really key ballot measures that are probably going to be on the the ballot in, in November. Of course, we have the Senate race. We have all kinds of stuff going on. Give us some thoughts on as you look forward on some of the key things that we're going to be dealing with as the year goes on. So I think one thing that people aren't talking about a lot that's going to be a big one for November and that could have some uh, down ticket impacts on races across the state. Um, the legislature put a repeal of Proposition 8. This is the um, uh, gay marriage ban. Uh, that's currently in the Constitution. A lot is being said about how how young voters uh, may not be motivated to turn out this election as they have in other presidential elections. I don't. I think that's maybe a little bit overblown at this point. I think we got to wait and see a little bit. One of the big factors um, that could counteract that is uh, this repeal of the gay marriage ban. That's currently in the California Constitution. Uh, I think that campaign is about to get uh, stood up and, you know, kind of like what we saw with Prop 1, putting uh, abortion rights into the state constitution last year that uh, motivated a lot of turnout 
uh, from young voters, you could see a similar impact with this one. You know, I, I want to follow up on that just a bit because, you know, as a member of the media, I'm sensitive to criticism about media, but I think one of the fair ones is we we tend, especially in the, the big national media, I see so much focus on, it's kind of like our version of doom scrolling. And, and sometimes <laughs> I don't know that we're really presenting the situation as accurately as we could be. And, and one of those things is, you know, I just think we, we, we make it look sometimes like it's maybe a lot more one way than it is another. And we leave out really key details sometimes. One of them being things like Prop 8 still being in the Constitution. I think so many people just presume that since, you know, they got the court struck it down, that, that that's all there is to it. But it's still in the oh, Constitution. Oh, it's still in the Constitution. And you talk to any constitutional so scholar about this Supreme Court, you know, that is not a safe ruling with this, the makeup of the Supreme Court being what it is. I mean, you look at what they did to row overturning decades of precedent um, to put forward their own ideological agenda. I think, you know, uh, this is by far not a settled issue, settled issue, sadly, uh, for this court. So uh, it makes sense that California would take every step to try to protect uh, same-sex marriage rights in the Constitution. Right. Well, there are some other measures, of course, that we're paying attention to. Uh, there's issues that have been around California the last several years, like rent control, that are a really big deal. Um, <laughs> and and the, the 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 whack-a-mole issue of online betting. Uh, <laughs> you know, give us some thoughts on some other potential ballot measures. So sports betting uh, is an interesting one. There was a development that I don't think people... I don't think a lot of people noticed in the California press corps, but DraftKings, FanDuel, and BetMGM released a statement that they're siding with the tribes uh, against a proposed measure that would that purports to legalize sports betting that was submitted for uh, the 2024 ballot. This measure uh, is being put forward by um, uh, folks connected to some of these offshore sports betting websites, illegal offshore sports betting websites. Um, and all of the tribes have come out, or not all, excuse me, not all of the tribes, but a number of the major tribes have come out against it. Uh, CNIGA, I think, uh, came out against it. And one of the reasons that uh, DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, and Fanatics said that they're uh, opposed to this initiative is because uh, they see you know, the path forward is working with the tribes and the tribes clearly are not supporting this one. There's a fascinating moment when this came out and uh, some of the tribal spokesmen said, Hey, we're really not on board with this. And the folks promoting this said, Oh, we're going to have meetings with the tribe, tribal leaders. They're gonna <laughs> love it. And I remember reading that thinking you really are doing this before you've actually met with the tribal leaders and kind of, yeah. you, know, you think you're going to get them on board after it's done. It was weird. I mean, having, you know, kind of kept an eye on this issue for 10 years or so, we, you know, we used to do regular conferences when this was at the legislative level and you had, uh, you know, bills going through the legislature regularly to legalize uh, online gaming. We, we covered that pretty extensively back then. And to see that struck me as so incredibly tone deaf just in general, but then coming on the heels of the proposition 
you know, whatever, 18 months ago. 26, 27, yeah. Yeah, that basically showed that the worst thing you should do is ignore the tribes or take them for granted or just try to do anything other than get them on your side. It was, it's bizarre. And I really don't understand it, but it, the whole thing just strikes me as very strange. And I'll be curious to see where it actually goes. Yeah, I you see a lot of that in the reporting around the gaming press. The gaming press is so interesting to me. You know, we all have our our you know our capital press corps, but there is a whole cottage industry of of independent outlets that cover sports betting, that cover gaming issues, uh, really aggressively. Um, and you see a lot of that in in the reporting around this initiative from those guys. I mean, one thing that I'll say about um, sports betting: uh, thirty five other states have legalized it. I think everybody sees the opportunity uh, for sports writing to bring revenue and economic opportunities to tribal nations, uh, to the state of California. Uh, right now, the only option that's available for Californians is illegal these illegal offshore sports betting apps that provide no protections for minors. They provide no protections for problem gaming, uh, and they provide no funding for the state uh, or for tribes. So everybody sees that there is a path and that there's potential for California to follow these other states and everybody to to find a solution that, that works. It's just a matter of getting everybody together to do it. Yeah, you know, it, it is a good point too about, about the plethora of gaming coverage that isn't part of what we do. And, and we actually have a really good uh, gaming reporter who's based in Las Vegas, uh, Brian Joseph, who works for us, who's been covering it a lot more, and we're gonna—we're actually going to be covering that a lot more. I hope I'm not giving away any secrets here, but at the end <laughs> of the day, we're actually covering it quite a bit more. He works a lot with the casinos on these kinds of issues, so I, I think it's something you're going to see a lot more from us here. You know, what what else is on the on the agenda though for this year that you're looking at? Because I I I'm trying to remember. Um, I guess the the rent control, I think, is the one I said. You know. I'm seeing all these commercials now. The rent is too damn high. You know, or the rent is too damn high. We're seeing a lot of that. I mean, look, it, this is an extraordinarily expensive place to live, California. You know, our but there's there's a lot of back and forth on the on the uh, efficacy of rent control on a statewide level. I mean, what are what what are you seeing there? What are you? I mean, there's there? a reason why voters have rejected um, statewide rent control twice now. Uh, everybody sees that we have a housing crisis and that we have a homelessness crisis. Um, why would we do anything that makes it harder for us to build more housing? I, that's what every economic study is has shown, that you actually disincentivize people creating housing by putting in you know, the kind of aggressive price controls uh, that you see in these initiatives. So, you know, I, it's the reason why Governor Newsom, for example, has long opposed these initiatives. I think what you're starting to see this election cycle, um, you know, one one person, one group has been funding all these statewide ballot control initiatives. That's uh, Michael Weinstein from AHF. Uh, uh, he is basically running a nonprofit um, that gets the vast majority of its funding um, by uh, utilizing a uh, tax scheme provided by the federal government. Um, what AHF does is they get drug discounts 
for HIV drugs, um, they're able to sell it to insurance companies at full price and profit, uh, profit the remainder. They're supposed to use that money for expanding treatment options uh, for HIV patients and for low-income patients. Uh, but instead, what it's done is run all of these ballot measures, run ballot measures to stop housing construction in Los Angeles, um, bought very expensive apartments and condos. So all of this is to say, I think there's going to be a lot more focus this year on how is it that AHF is able to uh, fund all of these things with is what is essentially your taxpayer money? Um, and is that an appropriate use of it? There's a ballot measure uh, that was introduced and that's currently being collected for signatures that would basically say, hey, if you utilize this federal program that provides uh, nonprofits an ability to make money by selling discounted drugs, you have to use that money for what the program is meant for, which is uh, helping low-income patients and not all of this other stuff. And it'll be a really interesting uh, and a really interesting campaign fight uh, that I think will be much needed over the next few months. So now to be clear, you're one of your clients is running the other side of that campaign. Just so yeah, I'm, I'm working yeah. for no yeah. on, uh, statewide rent control. I assumed, I just want to make sure our listeners know we're not, we're not just, uh, no, yeah. of course. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, you Hope know, it's interesting. Weinstein is such an interesting guy and, uh, there's been so much coverage about him, you know, and, and his name, people either love him or hate him. You know, there's no, absolutely no in between. Interesting, interesting character. We've written about him a little bit, uh, but, you know, he doesn't have a good record. His ballot initiatives have not, I don't think he's passed a single one, but good Lord, he has made his opponents spend hundreds of millions of dollars against him. It's it's an interesting uh, thing. I mean, he's definitely had an impact because people are spending money they would have spent other places uh, to overcome his ballot initiatives. But I don't think he's I don't think he's won a single one. Well, I mean, like it's interesting. He's he's essentially using what is a taxpayer supported subsidy to finance all of this. Like, how is that allowed in any other, you know, in any other context? That would be a gross misuse to funds but because of the way that this one federal program is written uh he's allowed he's been allowed to get away with it do you have a sense that the uh the initiative that would sort of change that ability is that going to go anywhere do you think yeah i mean it's out for signatures right now it'll definitely be on the ballot oh it will be on the ballot okay yeah for sure it's it's uh it reached its 25 percent threshold i want to say in early january so it'll be on the ballot for sure and so, you know, we, we got to pass this and I wanted to ask this back when we were talking about the primary a little bit. Can you talk about the impact of the March primary? I mean, this is very different. You know, California has had a June primary uh, and we've had a much later primary. Uh, what are the impact you see or is there an impact, I should say, uh, of this much earlier primary? It's you saw just a ton of activity in December as people tried to figure out um what they were running for, uh, you had a lot of, you know, people, especially with retirements, there were some late breaking retirements in December, um, right before the filing deadline. Usually folks have, you know, a little bit longer to decide, you know, it, it was a really interesting December. And it, usually those filing deadlines are January, February. 
with a later primary. So, you know, everything's pushed up, but it also gives people a lot more time to raise money from March to November. Usually it's a real um, slog raising for candidates in particular to raise money uh, in that four month window. Uh, but with a little bit longer lead time, those in the top two be able to raise a lot more money. You know, Nathan, I, one thing I do want to ask you about, too, that we didn't touch on, you know, you you mentioned, you know, you've been in D.C., worked there, you worked very closely with Kamala Harris, uh, you know, Katie Porter. Um, man, the U.S. House right now is really, really an interesting watch on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure. And I, I this is kind of where I was starting to go earlier when I was talking about how we cover these things. I'm, I don't know how many people are aware of just how close the margin is right there and right now for the for still currently the majority party, the Republicans. But man, what are your thoughts on on how things are looking there right now? I mean, fundamentally, one of the reasons I grew to really dislike working in Washington is that you really can't get anything done there. I mean, functionally, our system is so um it's just so partisan. But also, you know, there's really no incentive for for people to work together. That's why um, I think someone like Katie Porter, who is long run kind of against Washington, went to Congress in 2019 to say, hey, I'm not going to play by the normal rules. I'm going to call people out on their BS um, and has really focused on uh, delivering for for real people, not just waging partisan wars that's why she's had so much success um they're just there's just a hunger for uh, from americans from californians to see their government actually work and you know this is this has been a problem since before trump i mean 2009 2010 2014 i mean we've had three four government shutdowns in the last 12 years that's insane that's not a system that's working so i much prefer working and living in california a place where you can actually get a lot of stuff done and you can put ideas on the table and move stuff forward as opposed to washington that's you know fundamentally broke not to put you on the spot but yeah. uh, this will run the day before the new hampshire primary <laughs> and uh so obviously trump got 51 percent of the vote in or of the caucus i should say in Iowa. And Nikki Haley is reported to be making a credible uh, run in New Hampshire. Do you have any sense of how that's going to go? And, and if and I mean, if all signs point to Trump. You know, I don't I don't see how you can look at the Iowa results. I don't see how you can look at the New Hampshire polls and not think that this is going to be, you know, Trump Fest 2.0. You uh, know, I have to say it's interesting and we don't have a historical record we could look back on in, in a relevant time period. But this is the first time in my memory that a former president is running again. Mm -hmm. You know, he was he was president, lost election is now running again. And it struck me he did win the Iowa caucus, but he only got about half the vote. And I thought, you know, I'm not sure that that's actually as good as his proponents are spinning it. And I think, for example, had Barack Obama lost to Mitt Romney in 2012, and then it run again in 2016, I feel like he would have gotten a lot more than 50% of the vote in Iowa. I mean, I obviously- well, Maybe the turnout was pretty you know, small too. Yeah, true. But we I got really half of a small turnout. 
it was yeah they were having like an ice storm but uh it's interesting i just don't know what to make of that and i think that if i was a person running trump's campaign i would be a little concerned that under just barely half of the people supported the former president ostensibly the head of the party uh in iowa it, it was an interesting thing i haven't really seen discussed and i'll be curious to see if any of this plays out in new hampshire and it, you I suspect you're probably right. I think he. Is I, it's, I, I want to be. I want to be. I want to believe that this Republican Party will say, you know, no to, to Trump. But it, you just look at the math. You you win with fifty percent. You know, like it, it is what it is. And I think you know everybody's wrestling with the math, and especially states like California that change the rules to make you know essentially winner take all. Um, you know, it's just. The math to me seems just increasingly clear that it's going to be Trump. Yeah, it seems like the decision on the fealty to Donald Trump and within the party, and certainly as a presidential candidate, it's going to have to come at the at the general election. Because I mean, at some point, the party's got to decide if it, if it wins. If it wins elections, it'll just keep doing the same thing it's doing. But if they lose elections, that's always the, the the thing, right? If you lose elections, your choices are to do something different or or just keep become become a minor party, which is what hap has happened to Republicans here in California. They won't change their minds, so they you know and change their platform, so they have become irrelevant at the statewide level in in California. And maybe someday they will change their platform i don't know but that's it seems like that's where the national party is as well they're but they won't if they lose elections they you know maybe they will but if they win why would they right so that's it's going to be a really i mean to me this feels like an all or nothing uh presidential campaign for them because they, they've yeah. pretty much lost everything else in, in some ways i guess i i just i i agree with you there the feedback loop that matters to Republican voters, it seems, is, you know, not did we win? Uh, it's what they see on Fox News. So it, yeah. it is what it is. Well, with that, uh, Nathan, I'll say thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this has been great. We love, love to have these kinds of conversations. I uh, love getting a little peek behind the veil into the governor's office and how the, the press uh, operation works there. Oh, you uh, know what? I cheated. I, I lied. I have, do have one other question for you. <laughs> So, okay, great. So the governor has, I don't know, not sure what the title is, but a communications director, and then sure. also has a press secretary. Mm -hmm. What the hell is the difference? We this is something we try to tease out. <laughs> we have been trying to figure out for years. So who does what? How does that I think it, it really varies from office to office, from governor to governor. Even, you know, uh, there have been different iterations um within this governor's office of different formulations of the comm shop. I think in theory, the theory goes, the press secretary is more day-to-day, -day, the reactive side of things, putting out fires, whereas the communications director can step back and kind of think of a long-term agenda and vision. Um, uh, functionally, some days it's harder to tell the difference than others just because you know there's so much stuff going on. There's so many different fires. Um, but I think in theory, that's that's how it's supposed to work. Well, Nathan, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks for stopping by today. For sure. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks again to Nathan for joining us on uh, the show today. 
that does mean, of course, it's time for our favorite uh, part of the show every week, which is who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And it's a little tough right now because, uh, you know, the, the ledge is just getting going um, and, and people haven't really thrown themselves into the kind of shenanigans that often land them on this segment of our show. But there is definitely a candidate this week. And um, it's we're, we're stepping back into local government, aren't we, Tim? Yeah, we're going a little bit south this week, heading down to the Fresno City Council. Yeah, Fresno City Council candidate. Nick Richardson, he had uh, got an endorsement from a very influential group down that way, which is, um, I don't make sure I got to say it correctly here, because it's the California Republican Assembly. So not to be confused with the California Republican Party or Republicans in the Assembly, but it's it's a local group uh, that is a very strong conservative group there, supports you know conservative candidates, and they had given him their endorsement. And then he went to a meeting that was in, attended by a number of activists who are very openly pro-Palestinian. He took some positions there that the assembly was not happy about. And so they have stripped him of that endorsement. And not only have they stripped him of that endorsement, they flipped support to a different candidate. So, uh, you know, in <clears throat> these local races... Those are the kinds of things that tend to matter quite a bit. And uh, I'm sure that he wasn't thinking that attending this this gathering was going to cost him the endorsement uh, of this very influential group, but it did. And it's interesting because what he, in essence, has done is uh, supported the ceasefire in Gaza, which in Democratic politics probably actually is very popular, but in Republican politics, not so much. But the thing I find interesting about this story, and we were talking about this before the show, is that it really underscores that we have flipped on the old axiom that all politics is local. And now all politics seems to be national and even international. And a local government's op official's opinion on abortion rights or on whether or not the election was stolen or whether or not Israel should should enact a ceasefire in its war with uh, Hamas. Those are things that I don't think 20 years ago would have really been on the local level. Like you wouldn't have been debating that at a city council. And yet we've seen that in San Francisco just in the last few weeks, they have actually debated that exact issue. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really true, all politics. And, you know, Tip O'Neill was the one who very famously said all politics are local, but it's true. You know, now we tend to live and breathe and die with the congressional races. This is a, a trend I don't think is healthy, by the way, for our country, but uh, that's just my opinion. It's interesting. I mean, this guy learned a lesson. I think he, you know, maybe at the end of the day, he is 100% committed to what he said, and he's happy to to lose that endorsement to, to speak to his values. And, you know, I give him full credit for that, if that is in fact the case. Uh, but I also wonder if he just didn't see this coming. And we will see everybody next week. Thanks again to Nathan Click for coming on the show. Uh, as always, that was a lot of fun. Tim, next week on the Capital Weekly Podcast, we'll have a, a, a new candidate for who had the worst week. And, uh, you know, we'll have another interesting guest uh, before that. So 
See you on the next episode. Thanks, Rich. See you Take soon. Care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California.